0: pdpw on demand here's bill baker life just isn't fair you probably heard that before or even said it but as we hear in this week's podcast from shelly o'leary life's unfairness is a gift she explains through her personal experiences that we don't get to choose what happens to us but we do get to choose whether our circumstances make us bitter or better here's part one of our podcast with shelly o'leary called the gift of unfair Hello again, friends. Last time we were together, we began a series in which we started contemplating some of the difficulties life throws at us and exploring how we can unwrap the gifts they present to us. Today, we're going to talk about the gift of unfair. Now, we've all said it and we've heard someone else say it. It's just not fair. And we've all probably heard the response. Well, Life isn't fair. Well, it's true. Life isn't fair. But that does not mean life isn't full of good things and good people and good experiences. Sometimes we may need to peel away a few layers of the onion to find those good things. But I believe at least a little bit of good can come out of even the worst situations. I'm going to take you back in time a little bit. Back in June of 1991, it was the summer before my junior year in high school, I was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer. Alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma is a soft muscle tissue cancer typically diagnosed in boys not older than five years old. So there I was, a 16-year-old female who had wondered about a lump she had That she probably should have told her parents about many months prior. In fact, if it weren't for that final biology lesson of my sophomore year, where we talked about the basic symptoms of cancer, there's a pretty good chance I would have waited a whole lot longer to tell my parents. I was just afraid, I guess. Well, it turns out that uh, even the doctor was pretty confident that the lump was harmless, that he was 99.9% sure. The lump was merely a chronically inflamed lymph node. There was nothing to worry about. But he put me on a two-week antibiotic treatment in an attempt to reduce or drastically shrink the size of the lump, and he was also wanting to test to see if his theory was correct. Two weeks later, I was back in his office, and it was clear it didn't do a thing. So he said, you know what, guys? We're just gonna remove this tumor just to be safe so surgery was scheduled six days later we got the official cancer diagnosis it's fair to say my parents were way more worried than i was after all i thought to myself i'm young and i'm otherwise healthy and the doctor told us he was able to get the whole tumor out and it was only the size of a grape what's the big deal still There was a whole slew of doctor appointments that followed. Not exactly my idea of a fun way to kick off a summer vacation. I was completely sick of seeing nurses and doctors and traveling to different clinics and hospitals to have my blood drawn again, and only been to eight or nine different appointments. I had no idea that we had only just begun. We were eventually referred to the pediatric oncology team at UW-Madison Hospital. It turns out our primary doctor and then the secondary levels of doctors and hospital networks didn't feel comfortable dealing with this type of rare cancer. As it happened, even the team at UW-Madison wasn't sure how to treat it. There was absolutely no textbook treatment protocol for me, I was so much older than the typical rhabdomyosarcoma patient, and I was a girl, which apparently in this case was the wrong gender. They proceeded forward. After much explanation and discussion between the oncology team, myself and my parents, they encouraged my parents to consider allowing me to go through a very aggressive course of cancer treatments And because I wasn't 18, it was my parents that would have to make this decision. I didn't have a say in it. Uh, The good news is I agreed with what my parents had decided. But the bad news is that that was a heavy burden for them to bear. Uh, The doctor's thinking was that it would be far better to over-treat me and save my life, even if it came with some collateral damage and long-term damage to my body, rather than under-treat me and lose me altogether. So reluctantly, my parents opted to allow the doctors to send me through some incredibly aggressive chemo and radiation treatments. In fact, that afternoon appointment had my dad going home, but not my mom and I. They didn't even let me go home. There were more tests in front of me. There was a bone scan a cardiac stress test, a spinal tap, and a surgical procedure in which doctors would implant a Hickman catheter. That's a a clampable tube that hangs out of the upper chest wall by about eh, three, three and a half inches or so. And inside the body, that same tube empties into an artery. It sounds pretty awful, and actually those first few days After the procedure, it feels pretty awful. It's still a a gaping open wound only covered in salve and gauze pad and medical tape. But the whole point is that in the end, it makes for painless blood draws, blood transfusions when those are needed, and of course, those chemo treatments. A lot of chemotherapy treatments, at least nowadays, are done out of patient. Some of them are even offered in pill form, but back in the early 90s, chemotherapy treatments commonly meant that you were going to spend a few days in the hospital. Those were inpatient treatments back in those days, and that was the case for me. But those first six months of chemo was to be a different cocktail of drugs than the final seven months of chemo. Again, the idea was to hit it hard and Wow, it hit me hard. I think I spent as much time in the hospital receiving chemo treatments as I did receiving care and treatments for the damage the chemo was doing to all the different systems in my body. The cool thing was I got to miss a lot of school, so there was that. I had never been in the popular group at school, so missing classes was quite all right with me but there was a lot of awful. There was nausea. Uh, There was losing my shoulder length hair, the acne that comes along with the body's response to all these toxins being introduced to the systems, the mouth sores, the loss of hair, the dizziness, the headaches, the weakness. And did I mention losing my hair? That was awful. Well, anyway, despite all the junk, I discovered almost immediately that as awful as things were for me, there was always somebody there going through something worse. Before every single chemotherapy treatment, my first stop once we arrived at the hospital was not the pediatric oncology ward up at F44, but to the hematology lab for a blood count check. If my white and red blood cells were in check, if my platelets, my hemoglobin, my hematic levels weren't within certain parameters, I couldn't have the chemotherapy treatment. I would either have to wait around in the lobby or at the cafeteria or they'd send me home. Every single time we arrived, that was my first stop, And every single time I was there at the hematology lab, while I waited for my name to be called, There was another young patient already seated in the waiting room. She was confined to a wheelchair. I don't know if she had cerebral palsy or spina bifida, and it really doesn't matter. Her presence always reminded me that I certainly had a lot of blessings to count. Not only was she nonverbal, her head and her torso were consistently being rocketed by spasms and twitches. She was almost never still and the bib around her neck didn't even begin to catch all the drool, the saliva that fell insistently out of her mouth. But the worst of it all is that I never saw anybody with her. Nobody ever was there at her side I always had my mom and if it wasn't my mom, my aunt, somebody was always there with me. And this young lady always sitting there by herself being tossed around by whatever condition was taking control of her body. That young lady helped me see with crystal clear vision that even though I hated what I was going through, I at least... I had a pretty sure confidence that once my 13 months of this temporary prison was over, I could get back to normal. I never learned her name, but I'll never forget her. During those first six months, F44, that pediatric oncology ward, was my home away from home, and I was there a lot. Just for the chemo treatments, I was scheduled for a treatment every three weeks, and each treatment took five to seven days, depending on if my blood counts were in check when I arrived and how hydrated I was upon arrival. And just about every single time I arrived to start another round of chemo, I'd see another boy there. I don't remember how old Scotty was, and I think it was leukemia that landed him there. Um he was certainly several years older than he looked. Unfortunately, the cancer and the treatments really had reduced him to a thin, tiny boy who spent most of his time laying in the hospital bed. His treatment protocol had called for a bone marrow transplant. And as is sometimes the case in bone marrow transplants, especially back in the early days, Patients would acquire a condition called graft-versus-host disease. That's a condition in which the immune cells from the donor marrow that they received would attack the cells in the host's body. So essentially, he's receiving bone marrow that's supposed to save his life, and instead the cells within that bone marrow view his cells as foreign and they go on attack and they wage war in his body. Because there weren't many regimens available to treat that condition back in 1991, the very treatment that doctors gave him to extend and enhance his life ended it. I remember peering in on occasion to see Scotty either laying completely still or tossing and turning in one form of distress or discomfort or another. His eyes had long since gone blind. He wasn't able to see, but his faithful mama was at his side every single time. And uh, I'm thankful that at least Scotty was never alone. I tell you, life on F44 was pretty depressing sometimes. You never knew when you'd arrive for another course of chemo to find out that one of the friends you made wasn't ever coming back. And I endured my share of emergency room visits and discomfort and even third degree radiation burns when the time for my radiation came. But there was always somebody whose circumstances made me thankful for my own. In the end, when I finally finished my chemotherapy treatments in August of 1992, I was all done. All the scans showed that I was cancer free and I thought that I was going to feel so victorious when I finally walked out of those hospital doors for that final treatment on my way home. And interestingly, I was scared. I thought to myself, Maybe you should have just one more treatment. I wasn't scared when they told me I had to start chemotherapy because I knew we were actively doing something about it. But on that last day, as I left, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I sure hope it was enough. Well, the good news is it was. So anyway, now let's fast forward. Almost 20 years later, late 2008, For reasons I chalked up to bad genetics, I started being plagued by migraines. It's a family trait, actually, on my mom's side. And in the beginning, I didn't really think anything of it. So I started purchasing over-the-counter migraine medicine to relieve the pain. And when that was not working any longer, by summer of 2009, the migraines were starting to affect my daily life. There finally came a time when I was fed up enough to call a doctor. The migraines were really getting in the way of everything. And I was getting tired of choosing what I was going to eat that day based on what it would taste like when it came back up. I guess that's a pretty good sign that that has carried on a little too long. Well, one MRI was all it took. Our doctor called me up and uh, said, hey, you might want to come and, and see me yet this afternoon." And tell Josh to come, too. Well, that should have been a red flag, hey? Eh? Well, any the doctor says, you need to visit me, and I'm making a space for you this afternoon, and make sure your spouse is with you. He referred me to the best neurosurgeon in our network within the week. And though I had that appointment within, I think it was six days, actually, by the time we arrived to that clinic, I needed help getting out of the car because my legs... Didn't remember how to hold me up. Within another few days, I was under the knife. A tumor the size of a golf ball was making its home in the right frontal lobe of my brain. Fortunately, if you're going to have a brain tumor, this is a really good place to have one. Uh, unfortunately, the surgeon and his team were unable to get it all out. A second surgery was scheduled. And uh, so I was under the knife again when the team decided they needed to be much more aggressive about resecting what they knew to be cancerous tissue. And they also knew that they were going to have to cut away some of the healthy tissue. And they did. My husband later asked, okay, so the part of her brain that you took out, what does that actually affect? And the doctor waved his hand at Josh and said, oh, just her personality, (laughs) And Josh didn't really find that humorous because, as a matter of fact, he kind of liked my personality before, and now he was a little bit afraid that he would uh, wake up to find his wife was a totally different person. He tells me that he still likes my personality, so I guess that's good news. By this time, I was 33 years old, so paying for the surgeries and the follow-up treatments that were going to result meant uh, that my parents weren't gonna do it anymore. The hassles with health insurance, well, those were gonna be things we had to deal with. You know, the unfortunate thing about going through cancer and its treatments when you're an adult is you probably still have a job to do. You might have a mortgage and and a car payment. And I had those things to deal with, which was not the case, of course, when I was still a junior in high school. My parents asked the question, whether or not this brain cancer was related to the first cancer I had back in 1991. And the doctor said, no, there's actually no connection at all. More like bad luck is what I would contribute it to. So we moved on to figuring out what are we gonna do next? In terms of comparing the two cancers, this brain cancer had a much poorer prognosis. Although the first one was very rare, The doctors had still guesstimated that I had a 60% chance of survival as long as they got it the first time. With the brain tumor, it had already advanced to a stage three, whereas the first one was a less advanced stage two. And the brain tumor had begun to grow what they call fingers into the healthy brain tissue which means that there were pieces of the tumor that were no longer just encapsulated within one structure. It was fingering out into healthy brain tissue and they weren't able to get it all out. So that's great news. Doctors gave me two to five years to live. My family was devastated. I, on the other hand, was kind of irritated. I felt like, how dare they speak such words of gloom and doom over me. They don't know how long I'm gonna live. I didn't want to take away from the fact that I knew they were highly schooled, highly educated, and this was their life's work. They knew what they were talking about, but I felt a little incensed. I'm not some gallon of milk with an expiration date stamped on my forehead. I did not want them to tell me how long I got to live. I don't care what their textbook says. And, you know, the truth of the matter is they couldn't possibly know how long I lived, but I determined then and there to make sure every single person on my care team knew that they better treat me like they would treat their own daughter and not just some other random patient who has a super dismal prognosis. I wasn't going to be putting up with any of that. So, unfortunately, there was another strike against me in this particular case. Apparently, there's some sort of rule that if you've already had chemotherapy and radiation, it reduces the amount of chemotherapy and radiation you can have for any subsequent treatment plans. And so, they had already told me there was really no effective treatment plan against the brain tumor, And now they were telling me that even if we did have an effective treatment plan, we couldn't give you the whole amount because you've already had chemo and radiation. didn't seem to matter that that was almost 20 years prior and in a totally separate part of my body. But there it was. So now I was completely leaning on sheer grit, determination, or stubbornness, I guess you could call it, and God. Me and God, I told somebody, we're a majority. So you can just help me along here, give me the treatments that you know how to give me, and we'll just see what God has in store. It wasn't long after those opening months of the brain cancer saga that I discovered there was a man my age in the town I grew up in, uh, just five miles away. He had the exact same cancer I had. So here I was with anaplastic, gemesthetic, astrocytoma, and this guy has that too. What are the chances? Unfortunately for him, his brain tumor was positioned in a much more complicated place to be surgically removed, and it affected a lot of different functions in the body. And unfortunately, he had a young wife, three school-age kids, And so just as my prognosis was looking up, treatments were going well, every single follow-up scan was showing that the tumor was not getting bigger, but rather staying the same size or shrinking, my husband and I found ourselves attending his funeral service, this young man who had the same cancer I did. And the whole town knew that the two of us, this young man and I, had been diagnosed with the same type of cancer. I tell you what, sitting in that fellowship that day, I felt what you could call survivor's guilt. It was some kind of awful. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. I couldn't see any reason why I should still be alive, well on my way toward healing and recovery. His family was not gonna receive that gift. I just didn't get it, and I realized once again, oh, man, there's always somebody going through something worse than what I'm going through. So I committed to myself, not for the first time, but from that point forward, I was going to make sure God would get the glory for saving my life, because somehow in that moment, I knew that he was going to. I said it at the beginning, life isn't fair. Going through tough times is like being refined by the fire. Uh, as it happens, steel steel is one of the planet's strongest metals. And yet, unless it can be formed into useful shapes, it can't be used, and it's got to go through the fire for it to melt. You're going to have to crank the heat up to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to melt it, but in the end, it's worth it. If you think about the structures in our world today, most of the large modern structures, stadiums, skyscrapers, bridges, airports, they're all supported by a steel skeleton, but there's no strength or even shaping where there isn't first some fire. You know what, guys? We do not get to choose what happens to us. But we do get to choose whether our circumstances will allow us to be bitter or to be better. I'm telling you, friends, better is the better choice every time. Our thanks to Shelley O'Leary for today's message. Shelley, the communications and outreach specialist with the professional dairy producers. And our thanks to you for listening and supporting these weekly PDPW podcasts and we encourage you to have a safe and productive week.